good Dara's on vacation, so we can't explain any of this properly. Why she can't correct us? Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, uh, joined by uh, Tara Golsham and, and first-time Weedser, Jeff Stein. Uh, hello. Hi, thanks for having me, Matt. Yeah, so Jeff and Tara uh, cover Congress for us here at thevox.com. Tara mostly looking at Republicans, Jeff mostly uh, at Democrats. Uh, but it's really, it's one big happy bipartisan family these days, so we thought we'd we'd bring, bring everybody together here um, to talk about uh, you know, some of the the party's individual struggles. We want to talk about some sort of ambitious progressive legislation. We want to talk about um, budget antics on, on the Republican side. Uh, but start out with um, deals that have been made. Uh, Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi came over to the White House on, what was it, Tuesday night, Wednesday night? And they had some Chinese food. They did. And, and they... <laughs> hashed out an agreement to protect dreamers and possibly fund the border. And it was it was kind of wild. And I think I think Tara, you actually you caught this story late at night, right? And and did the sort of initial reporting and, and write up on it. And what like what happened? I did. I was about to go to sleep and then I saw that Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer announced a deal on uh on DACA. Well, okay. They clarified it wasn't a deal. They said it was, it was an agreement. So they went to the White House and they announced that Trump had agreed to pass some form of the DREAM Act or agree to the DREAM Act as long as um, they added some kind of border security package that excluded funding the wall. So that was the big kind of exchange where they would agree to some security on the border, whether that's technology, shimmer floated drones, um, I don't know what else that could entail. The details are are forthcoming, um, but no wall funding. And then immediately within an hour, the White House kind of scrambled on this and the press secretary came out saying, no, we didn't actually agree on not funding the wall. And then the legislative director from the White House said, no, this statement from Schumer and Pelosi is widely misleading. And this whole thing started crumbling. And then the next day on Capitol Hill, it was like, Nothing had actually been agreed on. There was no deal. There was—we were back at square one, and Paul Ryan was saying, no, I'm going to find Republican consensus on immigration. Every Everyone was trying to figure out what was going to go on from there. So, But then Trump said, basically, that they had a deal. Yeah, I mean, tr- well, so Trump said, like, a million things on Thursday about the DACA agreement or conversation. He said there was no deal, but then— he said the wall is very important and that it will get done, but then he clarified the wall will get done later. So he basically confirmed what Pelosi and Schumer were saying is that the wall does not have to be connected to any version of um, enshrining DACA into law. And uh, and then he kind of went on to, I think he repeated that statement multiple times throughout the day. That is not, that is not necessarily what's being reflected on Capitol Hill. They're still saying that everything is in play. To to me, the key thing, though, was Trump's tweet in which he said, does anyone really want to deport 800,000 people who were brought here through no fault of their own, who have jobs, who are serving in the military? Because uh, the answer is like, yes, some people do really want to deport those people. For example, Jeff Sessions seems to really want to deport them. At his, you know, Sessions at a press conference a couple weeks ago, where he was sort of announcing a legal policy decision that they were not going to defend a hypothetical lawsuit from Texas. But he, like, went off script and was like, these guys are taking jobs from Americans, right? Like, that's a a strong policy view. And Trump was making it clear in a couple of his um, verbal remarks outside the airplane, apparently in what he said to Schumer and Pelosi, definitely in, in what he tweeted about this, that, like, he does not agree with that view that like he wants to make a deal in which he gets some kind of border security in exchange for uh helping not deport the dreamers because he doesn't think we should deport the dreamers and then conversely schumer has like drawn this very hard line against a wall quote unquote uh but for years has been doing border security funding things so it's it's the the best kind of bipartisan deal in which schumer is 
giving, quote-unquote, Trump something that Schumer supports, and Trump is giving Democrats something that it seems like Trump also supports. There's been a lot of talk this week on Capitol Hill about sort of the legislative machinated genius of Pelosi and Schumer, how they wooed Trump, how they persuaded him with Chinese food in their coastal elite cosmopolitan ways. And I think, like, that may be true, and there may be some sort of greater story about how Pelosi and, and Schumer have won over Trump. But, like, the simplest explanation here is that they just agree on the policy, like Matt was saying. Like, Schumer and Pelosi want to do something for Dreamers, and Trump seems to agree. Uh, and you can look at that and say, well, that's a sign that Trump is willing to break from the Republican Party. But the simplest explanation is that they just overlap on this policy discussion. I mean, it, it was fascinating when you look at, like, why the DREAM Act didn't pass back in 2010 when it came out, right? That, you know, some Democrats voted no on it. Uh, most Republicans voted to, to filibuster. And, like, among the filibustering Republicans was not just, like, Mitch McConnell, but John McCain, who— both earlier and later, has been like a staunch advocate of much more sweeping immigration reforms. And clearly part of what was happening there was that like Republicans didn't want to give Obama a win, right? So part of what, what sort of opens this is there are many Republicans on the Hill who are like serious immigration restrictionists, but there's also some number of them, particularly in the Senate, who seem torn between like Actually, their view on immigration is not that different from sort of mainstream Democrats, but they didn't like Barack Obama being president. And so if Trump is what, what like a deal that Trump wants to make, right, that that's going to play in the press as like Trump did a deal, you know, they're OK with. But then there is another group of Republicans, right, like Dave Bratt won his primary against Eric Cantor based on, like, an entirely hypothetical immigration deal that Eric Cantor was supposedly going to agree to, even though there was no evidence that was ever going to happen. So it's a real, you know, divide, right? I mean, the, the talking about dreamers is something that really brings Democrats together and, like, really divides Republicans. This is not, like, the forefront of what an anti-immigration Republican sort of wants to be talking about. And it does seem like that's why you can have a deal here. Except, as you were saying, Tara, they don't actually have a deal in no. the traditional sense of I a mean, well, And Matt's point about, like, you know, not having a crystallized deal and the idea that Republicans didn't want to give Obama a win might be true in reverse this time. And Schumer said that he and Trump came to some sort of agreement about additional border security. But, like, what what is additional border security? That is a it's a huge question. There's tons of ways and different variations within that policy. Uh, Schumer gave a floor speech yesterday in which he talked about, uh, I think the quote was, a, that a wall was a, a Game of Thrones idea for a world uh, closer to Star Wars, um, which didn't make a lot of sense. And Schumer instead called for sort of a mass deployment of drones at the border. And I don't think most congressional Democrats are going to sign off on giving Trump that degree of uh, border enforcement. So that like that question of what is this border security uh, is one that will give, I think, a lot of annoyed left-wing Democrats a chance to deprive Trump of a win, even if right now the momentum looks like Schumer and Pelosi are working with Trump. And, and Republicans, I mean, they weren't in the room, right? So right. they are very much so billing this as they were just talks. I mean, Paul Ryan was so adamant at his press conference yesterday that there was no agreement. There was no deal. There weren't even no negotiations. This is just Trump trying to hear what Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer were thinking about, uh, which was very much so not what the statement from top Democratic leaders was when coming out of it, but also not really what Trump's sentiment was coming out of that meeting either. And so I think what you're seeing is this reaction from Republicans on the Hill of, hey, we want to be included in this process because we have the majority and that we can have this discussion first. And you gave us six months to have this discussion. And Trump just being like, no, I want this done really fast. And this also relates to the debt limit and CR thing, where I think a lot of people looking at... So, so this was a deal that was reached uh, the previous week in which they agreed to sort of keep government funding for three months, suspend the debt ceiling for three months, and just kind of revisit things in December. 
And this played in the press because articles are written by people who follow things very closely as like, this is a big win for Democrats. And I know a lot of people, people emailed me, they were like, I don't even understand, like, what did Democrats win here? And I think to really understand what Democrats won, you just have to like look at the TikTok of the meeting. Like, who knows why the different people came into that meeting with different positions? Now, basically what happened was, was that Pelosi and Schumer laid out an idea, which was, let's kick this all down the road for three months, and then Trump just agreed to it, right? And, like, whether that's, like, a huge win for Democrats on substance or not, the process was there were Republican leaders in the room and there were Democratic leaders in the room, and instead of meeting in the middle or instead of Trump yelling at the Democrats or doing anything to try to force Democrats off their position, he just agreed to what Schumer and Pelosi we're saying, and that made Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell sad, as of course you would if the president who's <laughs> supposed to be on your side is not even attempting to back up your position. Now, I don't think we're going to like look back, you know, 20 years from now and be like, aha, this was like the greatest betrayal of conservatism that, that ever happened. Uh, it all just sort of hinges on the fact that I think Democrats think Republican leaders don't want to do more votes on the debt ceiling. And so by making it short, that's like, quote unquote, a win for Democrats. It, it, there's, there's a certain amount of nonsense to it, but there's also just a certain amount of reality to it. And that it, it set a worrying precedent for congressional Republicans that then seems to have been delivered on in Trump having Schumer and Pelosi over for dinner without McConnell and Ryan even being in the room, and then Schumer coming out the next day tweeting about how, oh, well, we're going to help dreamers, right? Like, that's not how—Republican congressional leaders don't want to be cut out of the bargaining process right. with the Democratic minority. And— at, we saw a report from Politico today from White House officials saying this, and then all the congressional Republicans that met with Trump this week or congressional Republicans that are close to Trump have just been repeating this comment that Trump is frustrated with Republican leaders, that how they messed up Obamacare and that he's just looking to cut a deal. And it doesn't seem that he really cares what the deal says. He's just trying to get things done. And that could be very problematic for Republican leaders. But like leaders. on policy, nothing has happened, right? Like Democrats right, have like, had no progressive policy victories. Like the government is running on a CR, which all the federal agencies hate because the way CRs work is sort of the government can't agree to funding levels. So they just agree to keep them in place from the prior uh, year and the prior cycle. But that means, you know, you can't adjust spending levels to the reality on the ground. So federal you know, officials are very frustrated the debt ceiling, which was a position that Democrats have held for years, that any sort of uh, use of the debt ceiling for leverage is sort of a nihilistic approach to governing, that like no one should ever use the debt ceiling for concessions. It's now a win for Democrats that the debt ceiling wasn't raised for longer. If you're getting all your information from like Facebook and Twitter, it, it, this stuff is fun, but you're not really going to be well informed. You're not really going to understand the world. A great way to go into greater depth about things and really understand what's happening is magazines. Uh, it's a very traditional form of journalism. Uh, you know, I, I used to work at magazine companies. I, I interned there. I, I love to read them. At the same time, it's a it's a it's an outdated sort of technology, and that's where Texture comes in. Texture is an app that it brings together almost all the leading magazine publishers in the country to create this great digital experience. You get the basics, which is you can read the articles in the issues, uh, but they go beyond delivering the magazine itself. They make it easy to find and enjoy articles you want to read. They give you daily recommendations, exclusive interactive features, videos, and more. Uh, and there's so many great titles in their collection. You get everything from uh, Sports Illustrated to Vogue to Fast Company to, to Rolling Stone. Uh, it's sort of like all the big ones out there. I mean, you should really check out their list. It's, it's incredibly impressive. And it's searchable. You mark what you like. You check out back issues. You view bonus features, and then the recommendations come, you know, based on what you say you like. So the normal price of this is $9.99 a month, which when you think about it, that's like a, a mind-blowing great deal. $9.99 a month for over 200 magazines. But it gets better, because if you sign up right now at texture.com slash weeds, you get 14 days totally for free. So instead of subscribing to just a couple magazines, you can have all your favorites on your smartphone or tablet for way less. Uh, 14 days free, you can check it out. They think you're going to love it. They think you're going to subscribe. It's an incredible value. So to start, what you need to know is you go to texture.com slash weeds to get a 14-day free trial. That's 14 days, two weeks to try Texture for free. And you go to texture.com slash weeds, texture.com slash weeds. When you're in the minority, 
if nothing's changing, like you're winning, right? I mean, we're we're looking at a very realistic possibility that the legislative legacy of Donald Trump and the Republican congressional majority is going to be Dream Act plus some border security funding. And I think you would not say that's like, that's not like a huge win for American liberalism, but that would be a pretty huge win for 48 senators out of 100 to be able to get so little. Like, I'm not just saying nothing's happened because you do a lot through, through the executive branch, but I mean, that's like, the kind of weird thing, you know, that, that we're, we're staring down the barrel at here. And and there was this very funny sort of, some of the reports have come out with the, the subtext that like, after this whole campaign that was like all about cultural grievances and rural right, white working class people and how like only Donald Trump understands like NASCAR fans who, you know, live in the woods somewhere, was that like, <laughs> Donald Trump is actually like a rich guy from Manhattan and he gets along really well with Chuck Schumer, who's also from New York, and Nancy Pelosi, who grew up in Baltimore and lives in San Francisco. And he finds Mitch McConnell and Paul Ryan, these like flyover country squares, like really hard to get Boy along scouts. with. Yeah, and they have nothing in common and he doesn't like to talk to them. Um, and when I was a reporter in Syracuse, the joke was always that the most dangerous place to be is between Chuck Schumer and a camera. Yeah, and that's like, an old Bob Dole joke for the record. Oh, really? Yeah, it's a classic Washington humor. <laughs> it's not very funny. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's, but yes, Chuck Schumer and Donald Trump have different political opinions now, but I think that they are very much two peas in a pod as, like, human beings. They used to go to donor events together. Right, yes. And also, Donald Trump used to be a major Schumer donor. Um, So Schumer is the only person in American politics who has an actual uh, relationship of any kind with Donald Trump that sort of predates, like, Donald Trump's emergence as the leader of an American fascist movement. So if anyone is going to sort of, like, talk him off that ledge, it, it does seem like it it would be Schumer. The other thing is he got rid of Rens Priebus, who you guys will remember was the former RNC chair as his chief of staff and replaced him with someone without such clear institutional ties to the Republican Party, which may have opened the door for Democrats to get in there. And at a minimum, there's no obvious door for congressional Republicans sort of in the White House anymore. That, like, Rens Priebus was an old kind of, like, Paul Ryan crony, right? That was, like, someone who Ryan could call. Um, Now, you know, John Kelly, I mean, he seems actually pretty right-wing, but he's not, like, a figure in Republican Party politics until he came in there. Uh, Gary Cohn, same deal. You know, he's, like, a kind of like a rich banker guy who I guess likes tax cuts, but he hasn't worked with congressional Republicans. And it, it leaves them a little bit unmoored, I think. And they, well, I mean, so what you're saying six. is... What? Gary Cohn's on the big six. He's big working six. On, though he's working on tax reform. All right. Well, we'll, we'll come back yeah, to tax reform. We'll come back but, to tax reform. But it seems to me that congressional Republicans are just feeling nervous. Not that... Not that, like, anything concrete has happened that they hate, but that there's something unsettling to them about this. Yes. I, and especially the more conservative ones, because this is a moment where they feel a little cut out of the process. Their leadership is the one kind of trying to convince them, like, no, we're going to still talk to you about immigration. We're going to try to make this as Republican-led as possible until we have to make a compromise. Um, but for them, I think Steve King was the one who said yesterday from, he's a representative from Iowa, that this seems harder than fighting immigration under Obama, because at least under Obama, we had a president to oppose, and it's very hard to resist a president of your own party. Although, the, what's interesting is that, you know, restrictionists successfully opposed George W. Bush, right, uh, on immigration. Part of what makes this unusually hard to the extent that Trump does tack to the middle on immigration, is that he's not just a Republican, but that it's very much a, like, Nixon goes to China kind of thing, right? I mean, and I think particularly in the Dreamers, for a sort of normal right-of-center American, the, the Dreamers are this weird case where, like, these particular individuals seem very sympathetic, right? It's like, if you are going to not deport someone, these would be the people to not deport. At the same time, the actual Dreamer 
activists are, like, very left-wing on immigration. Like, they're not out there with signs saying, like, deport my dad instead, right? Like, they are think, like, borders are illegitimate and blah, 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 blah. And so people might sympathize with the dreamers while not wanting to empower the, like, left-wing immigration activists. And Donald Trump, like, precisely because he seems like a sort of racist maniac, is, like, the perfect person then to be like, okay, we're we're going to let these people stay, but you don't need to be afraid that this then means, like, you know, lights off, right? Because, like, tough guy Donald Trump and John Kelly, like, we're still, we're still running the show. And I think that is what makes it hard for Steve King or Jeff Sessions to, like, whip people up into a panic that, like, this means we're going to lose control because Donald Trump is still in charge, right? And among the people who would be worried about this, those people really like Donald Trump. And, I mean, Trump is also trying to make an effort to push that tough guy. I mean, he doesn't want to look weak. Like, he wants to be a deal maker, but he doesn't want to look weak. So in the day after this agreement, all of his comments to reporters were were both, uh, yes, I'm compassionate about dreamers, but also we need the border wall, no amnesty, all of that, even though I don't know if he realizes that what he considers amnesty is actually in the DREAM Act. Well, amnesty, I know. I've got a little darling on my shoulder. It's just a term that, like, whatever it is you agree to do on immigration, you say that's definitely not amnesty, right? <laughs> right. Because the, for whatever reason, Ronald Reagan liked the term amnesty. And so, like, he characterized the 1986 immigration legislation as amnesty. Like, he went on television and was like, we got to do this amnesty, right? So then... Some people decided that bill was bad, and they were like, aha, amnesty is terrible. So it just became this, like, toxic term. And now whatever it is you're for, you know, I mean, you could look back to Schumer and Marco Rubio when they had their Gang of Eight deal. Like, that definitely wasn't amnesty. George W. Bush's 2007 proposal, like, that wasn't amnesty. Trump was saying, oh, no amnesty, but, like, I'll do this thing that's actually amnesty. Uh, Nancy Pelosi, who uh, sort of remembers the ancient talking points from 2007 debate, was up there yesterday, and she was saying, it's not amnesty, it's an earned legalization. Um, and so the the distinction, right, is that I guess in an amnesty, you would just forgive people their past legal violations, but in an earned legalization, you, like, pay some back taxes and, like, maybe a fee, and in exchange for that, you earn legal status. So, see, it's not amnesty at all. Um, although, of course, it is in the view of anyone who's skeptical of this kind of idea. Um, Trump, you know, as usual, is not, like, super attuned to the nuances of these kind of arguments, which which often leaves him in the sort of political high ground where you just say what people want to hear and then nobody knows what's going on. But I think your point about Dreamers as being a super um, political issue for Democrats, where it's they can unify their entire caucus behind it, suggests that we should be a little skeptical of this new Trump-Pelosi-Schumer alliance, because once they get that off the table, assuming they do, the questions become much more difficult. You know, there's about a million people under DACA who are here legally, or you know, right now, um, and who are now imperiled because of Trump's decision to rescind DACA. But there are 11 million or so other people who are still undocumented in this country and there's a huge range of opinions within the Democratic caucus about how to treat those people and what should be done about them, what should be done about the parents of dreamers. Yeah, and some concern in particular that solving the dreamer issue makes it less likely that sort of moderate Democrats, moderate Republicans will ever be, you know, compelled to do something for the rest. Yeah, so when there was this agreement in September, uh, Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer agreed to fund the government, lift the debt ceiling, and find uh, hurricane relief uh, for the victims of the of the Harvey disaster. Uh, and there was a lot of concern from some of the activists, the left wing activists, and some more left wing uh, House Democrats that they had that Democrats had just voluntarily given up all their leverage to push for the DACA kids to be safe. Uh, and and that's like to Matt's point, right? That that this is a really good political issue for Democrats. I think a lot of those left-wing activists were worried that the reason, and this is a pretty explosive charge, but but they were concerned that the reason that Pelosi and Schumer didn't use their leverage immediately is because they wanted DACA in the news because it's a good political issue for Democrats. And 
uh, I was at an off-record event with a Democratic senator or on background, and he was saying, like, look, we, we need to hammer them over this for the next two months and make them feel the political heat and the political pain for this, which is fair, and it makes sense that Democrats would want to do that. On the other hand, it's still not using all the leverage the Democratic Party has uh, to make sure that something gets passed for the DACA recipients. Yeah, but instead they got some egg rolls and, and seemed to have worked it out. I love being able to learn about anything that interests me whenever I want, and and The Great Courses Plus is an amazing way to do that. You spend hours watching fascinating video lectures, learning from award-winning experts about topics that are interesting to me. Uh, That's politics, but also world history, psychology. I I even saw a great class on cooking. They've got over 8,000 different lectures, so there's always something new to explore. Uh, A really great one that, that I've seen recently is their series on the economics of uncertainty, right? So this is like how to survive and thrive economically in a world in which you know that there are sort of threats and risks out there, but you don't necessarily know what they are. So uh, award-winning economist and professor Connell Fullenkamp offers these amazing tools that you can use to sort of analyze all aspects of our lives, thinking critically, weighing risks versus benefits. It's a fascinating way to think about, you know, a problem that kind of nags at a lot of us, but we don't necessarily have the kind of tools and, and analysis to deal with. So I'd really like you to experience The Great Courses Plus too, and they're giving our listeners an entire month of unlimited access to watch this or any of their fascinating lectures for free, but you got to sign up with our special Weeds URL. So you start your free month now. You sign up at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash weeds. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash weeds. You're going to get a free month. Uh, they think you're really going to enjoy it. So wait, so let's let's shift gears a little bit. So speaking of Democrats, uh, while Democratic leaders were off in the in the White House, uh, you know, have, having Chinese food and, and making deals. Uh, the more liberal members came together around uh, a big healthcare proposal that, that we talked about on the last episode of The Weeds, and a similar but somewhat bigger group of people also had a, a childcare proposal. Um, so can you tell us, I, I mean, we, we, we talked a lot about Bernie's sort of thing, but you wrote a really interesting story about how Bernie uh, worked with some of his colleagues to, like, get way more people to, to sign on to this bill than, than had been the case in the past. And can, can you tell us a, a little bit about that, about that kind of work? Sure. It's it's fun to look at, like, the 2014 uh, Sanders single-payer plan because it was just, like, hopelessly out of date. It wasn't updated at all for any of the changes in the healthcare industry in the last 10 years. It had just been sort of copied and pasted from Paul Wellstone's 1991 a uh, single-payer proposal. So Sanders' healthcare team sort of decided that they were going to get serious about crafting a bill that they thought Senate Democrats could get behind. And a lot of that involved sort of toning down some of the most extreme elements of the original single-payer plans. Uh, for instance, there's a companion bill in the House sponsored by Representative John Conyers, and his single-payer plan would instantaneously, within about one year, take the 150 million Americans on private insurance and move them to this Medicare for all package. It would take 330 million Americans in total, so the entire country, and move them to the single-payer plan. Uh, What Sanders' team did and and what I think their sort of central innovation in the new bill was, was to create an on-ramp, a transition period that would allow Senate Democrats to feel like they could get behind the bill. So instead of saying in just one year, the entire Everyone in America will move from whatever plan they have, whether they like it or not, to this public Medicare plan, this single government insurer. Instead, we're going to phase it in over four years. And that, at least according to the people who were close to the bill, uh, was a huge step in winning uh, Senate Democrats over. So in in the new bill, uh, the first year drops the Medicare enrollment age from where it currently is at 65 to 55, and it raises it. So basically everyone from zero to 18 is automatically enrolled in this Medicare for All package. And that sort of opened the door for a lot of Senate Democrats because a lot of Senate Democrats have already called uh, for the Medicare enrollment age to be dropped from 65 to 55. Uh, And then the plan sort of works over the next four years to move closer and closer and closer to having everyone on that plan sort of gradually over four years instead of instantaneously. There are other ways in which like the bill sort of subtly while still retaining the functions of a single-payer healthcare system walked back some of the most extreme elements of the initial Sanders and Conyers single-payer plans. For instance, the original bills called for eliminating all for-profit-owned hospitals. The current bill 
doesn't include that at all. I mean, that's actually a big difference. I mean, it's it's easy to say like, well, they changed the details, but like, if you had legis- if you didn't do any of the rest of this, right? If somebody just put in a bill and was like, we're going to make for-profit hospitals illegal. Like, that would be a, a big deal, right? Yeah. That's not like a, an afterthought. It, it's true that, like, transforming the whole health insurance system is so big that, like, are we banning for-profit hospitals winds up seeming like a detail. But, like, that's an example of, like, a large change that was made. And I think, I don't think anyone ever really knew, like, why that was part of the previous proposal. Like, you know, like Bernie campaign rallies, he wasn't talking about, like, the superiority of nonprofit versus for-profit hospitals. Like, some of these, it shows a little bit how, like, dusty the 2014 document had been, that, like, they weren't out talking about this on the campaign trail, but it was in there, and then they went back in it, and, you know, I don't know, freshened things up. In part because, they, like, they didn't expect to get any Senate Democrats on the 2014 bill. So there was no reason not to put literally every healthcare idea you could possibly think of into that bill. It wasn't it wasn't a coalition building effort. And this clearly was, right? This got, uh, I think the latest count was 17 Senate Democratic sponsors or basically a third of the caucus for a proposal that for decades had gotten one co-sponsor, one Senate Democrat or not even a Democrat um, standing behind it. Right. So Tara, uh, you, you looked at a Republican sort of reaction to this. Uh, obviously they're not... Uh, Stampeding to sort of go get on the bill, uh, but but do do Republicans who you talk to see this as like a significant development in some way? Are they like salivating at the opportunity to to hit Democrats on this? Like, what's up? Are they worried Schumer and Pelosi will convince Trump to sign on to a single payer bill? I have not heard of that yet. <laughs> um, they kind of just felt like they were shrugging on the sidelines, like. Everyone I talked to was like, "Well, of course, some contingent of Democrats want single payer. Like we." knew this was coming or whatever. Um, And it's, to them, it's just a clear political play. They were like, they're growing their base. This is what, it was a big campaign slogan for Sanders during the 2016 primaries. Um, And they're just, this is just, I think Ron Johnson called it political demagoguery. Yeah, and like, they're just not taking it seriously. They're just- The the thing is, they're like kind of rhetorically like boxed in. Like they spent- eight years calling Obamacare like government-run healthcare. Uh, government-run healthcare is like, there are elements of Obamacare that expanded the government reach, but there, it had a huge role for private insurers and still does. Sanders' plan isn't government-run healthcare either. It's government-run insurance. But there's a way in which like that, like the Senate Democrats don't really fear that critique the way they they may have if they were thinking about getting behind the Sanders bill five years ago because they're totally used to being called uh, sponsors of government-run healthcare. It's like they, they've gotten used to that charge. And I think the thinking is like, if that's all they're going to be able to throw at us, we may as well stand behind something that our base is super excited about and like will actually show up to vote for us to get implemented. As long okay. as they're not supposed to put any taxes in the bill. And Republicans are boxed in too because they haven't been able to show anything better on their front. I mean... Their, their deadline for repealing Obamacare is almost over. They have one last idea, which I think is alive because it's not dead yet, and which is the Graham Cassidy, Heller Johnson. An interesting question to me is, like, does this make any Republicans think maybe they, like, really ought to do this bipartisan market stabilization stuff? Like, if they're not going to repeal Obamacare— I, I think everyone is, un, they're under the, under, I mean, they've come to the realization that their deadline is running out to repeal Obamacare on a Republican-led effort, which means that bipartisan conversations have to happen, and those are happening. And when I ask them if they think this kind of energy in the Democratic Party will make it harder for them to have bipartisan conversations, whether it's taken the conversation too far to the left now, they're saying, no, I mean, that's just one faction of the base and we can still talk to the moderates that will talk to us and we can still get this done. Obviously, they're not going to say everything's screwed, but I I didn't get the sense that they're taking single-payer seriously at all. Although Trump was tweeting. Right, that uh, that we're gonna. Yeah, he's preparing true. the veto pen. Yeah, yeah he's 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 gonna veto it. <laughs> yeah. So if this gets um, 
what did they have? Did they have 17 Democrats on the bill? Eight, 18 if you include Bernie. Yeah, so if they pick up uh, the rest of the caucus plus 12 Republicans, <laughs> uh, Trump, is, Trump is ready to beat them. So. That's that maybe my favorite Trump tweet so far. Yeah, it was a good one. Yeah. It was a good one. He's he's sort of, he's raising the stakes. His rip count is much better than mine, apparently. On, or actually, it's terrible. It's garbage. It's not <laughs> yeah, I don't think, he, I'm not entirely sure he knows uh, how, how this stuff works. Um, we it, should send him that Vox video about how a bill becomes a law. Right. Um, <laughs> Schoolhouse Rock. You're busy in life, you know, you probably got six meetings, 214 emails to respond to, and a million books, you, you know, you told yourself you, you get around to one day, uh, but but you're not really. And our sponsor today can really help you with one of those and give you back some spare time to save with the rest. What we're talking about here is Blinkist. This is an app that has over 2,000 of the best-selling nonfiction books transformed into power packs that you can read or listen to in just 15 minutes. Uh, so you're listening to this podcast, you, you probably love the idea of learning on the go, and, and if you could listen to the key insights of a nonfiction book in just 15 minutes. You could save a lot of time and, and you could come out and, and, you know, really understand some of this stuff. Uh, you can feast to key ideas from top best-selling books like Why Nations Fail, The Myth of a Strong Leader, uh, Crippled America, or Two Nations Indivisible. Uh, it's a really great sort of thing. Forbes, BuzzFeed, The New York Times, and Lifehack are all talking about Blinkist. They were chosen in Apple's Best of Selection for two years and in Google's Best of Selection. It's used by over one million users today. They can help you be your best. You could join that million. Uh, and we've got a special offer for our audience. You go to Blinkist.com slash weeds right now to start your free trial or get three months off your yearly plan when you join today. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T. Blinkist.com slash weeds to start your free trial or get three months off a yearly plan. Blinkist.com slash weeds. So then what's, what's up with this childcare bill that came as a kind of weird C-plot in this week's event? So, I mean, you mentioned that, like, there's a lot of overlap between the Senate Democrats on the Sanders plan, the health care plan, and the child care plan. But what I thought was interesting is that the people who are most leading the child care effort are, are not on the Sanders plan, but are also not like the rural conservative Senate Democrats who don't have an interest in shoring up their progressive bona fide right. credentials. So it's like Patty Murray of Washington— uh, is a progressive who, you know, is one of the more liberal members of uh, the Senate. However, she's very close to leadership. Senate Democratic leadership has been skeptical of Sanders' bill. Murray did not get on the Sanders plan. However, she does have this new child care plan that is extremely ambitious. So the child care plan basically would say that child care should be an entitlement, much like Social Security or Medicare, uh, the federal government would be obligated to essentially fund child care with a little bit of cost sharing on a sort of gradated income scale. So depending on how much money you have, you would be required to pay a certain amount for for your for child care. And it's it's really an expansion of uh, what Hillary Clinton wanted to do. And and Senate Democrats had been working on a similar proposal to have ready in case uh, Clinton won. That obviously didn't happen. And in, so instead, they've sort of expanded the horizons of what they want to do on child care. They've gotten more ambitious. Uh, and that ambition is really to say, uh, we want to do universal uh, pre-K and supplement that by pouring about $60 billion annually to ensure that uh, child care centers have enough money to take in enough people to guarantee universal care uh, for child care, assuming that people meet these like small co-payments that they're hoping for. And so this, like, even even more so, actually, that this would be cheaper than Sanders' health care bill, uh, but is even further from a sort of explicit tax and, and pay-for mechanism, because Sa- Sanders put out this sort of I don't exactly know how to characterize it. They call it financing options. It's just like an arbitrary list of taxes that could exist and or be raised um, with no sense of which of them they're endorsing. But it is there. They did they did something, right? They gave us some some kind of sense of, of what's, I guess, on the on the menu and they they say we should have hearings. Um I mean part of the problem there, right, is like they haven't decided what the Medicare reimbursement rates would right. be under a healthcare under this single payer healthcare system. So you have no idea how much money you're going to have to raise to do that. Right. And if you ask Sanders people, like, why not do that? The answer tends to be, like, we don't have enough help from think tanks. Right. So but I, like, think- I think this, like, also kind of critique kind of misses, like, it's totally fair and valid. And, and it's true insofar as, as, like, you're looking at why they don't have financing options. But it also kind of misses 
why Sanders is doing this. Like he does not see, I mean, he told me when I interviewed him this week, and there's a direct quote, this is not really a healthcare debate. Like he does not view the policy mechanics of this as what's going on here. He's trying to like get people excited to transform the American government. So then we can have the discussion about healthcare, not figuring out exactly what the bill will look like right now. Right. I, I mean, it's just, it's created this sort of political slipstream, whereas you're saying, since Republicans were already out there saying, like, Obamacare is a socialist takeover of everything, now, like, you can totally sign on for this other socialist takeover of everything. A whole new political fight would be, like, here's our 11% payroll tax. But the child care Democrats who are— Something I want to say is that this, like, oh, Bernie doesn't pay for his plans had sort of emerged as a Democratic establishment talking point against— Bernie. Um, but this child care plan is a reminder that when it suits them, the Democratic leadership also doesn't pay for their plans. Because traditionally in politics, you try to talk about the appealing aspects of your bill rather than the sad ones. Um, so Hillary's uh, child care plan did not have any kind of pay-for mechanism in the campaign. This sort of further refinement that Patty Murray has come up with uh, also does not have any kind of, of pay-for mechanism. And, you know, I mean, I think that's fine as politics. What I I just want to say is, you know, it, it matters as policy because it's hard to look at this proposal. It's like, well, okay, we're going to give um, discount childcare to people below 150% of the poverty line. Um, it really matters who pays the taxes for that to analyze, like, who comes out better off and, and worse off. And Matt Brunig... Um, was quoted in your piece, uh, and he was saying, like, I don't know, as long as Democrats are making things up, they should give free child care to everyone. Um, and, like, maybe so. Uh, but, I, again, it, it like, who ends up better off and worse off on net on these policies does, like, hinge critically on who is paying the freight for them. That's, that's really true of the Sanders plan, right? Like, uh, Dylan Matthews has made this point to me, uh, I think, really convincingly, where, you know, if you're a worker— and Sanders' plan somehow gets implemented, right? Uh, the, the basic framework of the Sanders plan is your health care costs will virtually go away, and in exchange, you'll pay a higher tax. But if that higher tax is greater than your health care savings, which there is, I think, legitimate concerns would be the case for some middle-income families, then you're really gonna, you would really get screwed by that proposal. Right. So, you know, this is the kind of thing where I think ultimately you would find that, like, Governing is is hard, right? I mean, I, I think there's a, you know, there's an old saying that, like, you campaign in poetry and you govern in prose. And, like, this is all definitely, like, the poetry phase of, of things. But speaking of prose, Tara. Yes. There's supposed to be a budget, right? Yeah. Is there? Uh, no. <laughs> How's it going? <laughs> <laughs> well, this week, um, well, House Republicans are aggressively, well, top leadership House Republicans are aggressively whipping this budget that they came out with before they all went on vacation slash recess in August. Um, And it still does not have the votes to pass. And it's largely because the conservative uh, faction of the House Republican conference wants all the details on tax reform first. uh, And there is no tax plan yet. But the budget is supposed to facilitate the tax reform. Can can you yeah. help like explain like wh- what is this dispute about the ordering? Like like wh- what's going on here? Okay, so you have to have a budget before you can do tax reform because it has the budget reconciliation instructions, which is the way that they can bypass the filibuster in the Senate. Um, so they want to have fifty one votes to pass tax reform with a Republican led effort. So they have to pass this budget first before they can pass a tax reform bill. Uh, the th- My understanding of it is that House leadership is saying we will come out with a framework for tax reform the week of September 25th, and then you will all vote on this budget because you will be okay with tax reform, and then we will pass tax reform. So the budget, they're going to get Republicans to sign off on the budget because they think Republicans will be interested in doing tax reform? Yes. Like, the the only reason the budget— is here right now. I mean, it doesn't fund the government. All the appropriations bills are going on on budget levels without the budget actually existing. It doesn't actually have like any purpose other than creating this vehicle to pass tax reform. But could they still use it to cut SNAP benefits and all the other things that the 
How's yeah, so in so if you write in the budget in the reconciliation instructions, they write how much savings each committee would have to produce by the end of this reconciliation process. So right now, I think it's sitting around two hundred three billion dollars across um, all the committees, and by the end of this tax reform process, all those committees would have to produce that amount of savings. Um, it's Funny to me because that was a big fight over the summer of where to put those savings levels because it kind of does dictate what tax reform will ultimately look like. If you have really high savings levels, you have to be, I mean, more careful with how you write your tax reform bill, right? So because you have to produce more savings by the end of it and you also want to do tax cuts, you have to— But you can do—so basically, if you write bigger— I guess they call them savings. Right. I'll call them cuts. Cuts, yeah. Into, into, Sorry, into the bill. In. You can you can do a bigger. See, Tara talks to Republicans all day. Yeah, I you know. Can do, <laughs> you can do bigger tax cuts if you have bigger spending cuts. But the downside is the appropriations committees then like have to actually live with the spending cuts. Right. Exactly. Which is annoying. Right. So yeah, and appropriation committees obviously don't want to have to make cuts as well. Have they talked to Senate Republicans about this? Are they? Last I heard from Senate Republicans was that they are also looking to pass a budget soon, but it seems a lot further behind. I cannot stress enough how kind of crazy it is that they have not figured this out yet. It is mid-September and it's it all just has to do with what the tax reform bill looks like now and there is no plan yet. Um let alone a plan that everyone will agree to. And that's kind of what's really funny about this is that conservatives say, hey, we're not going to sign on to this budget to allow tax reform to happen if we don't like, if we don't know what tax reform is. But if they know what tax reform is and they don't like it, they're also not going to sign up for the budget. And there's also a little bit of a chicken and egg thing, right? I mean, so it's like legally you're supposed to do a budget and then based on what the budget says, you can do tax reform. Right. But practically speaking, People don't want to vote for the budget unless they know what the content of the tax reform is going to be. Right. I mean, there are politics of that too, right? It's easier to say no to a budget than it is to a tax reform bill. Right. But the um, the tax reform writers, right, this like so-called big six of uh, – it's, it's Cohn and Mnuchin from the uh, executive branch and then the uh, sort of key congressional leaders. Right. They're like supposed to be working on a tax reform plan and they themselves have been very ambiguous as to like what they're – exactly trying to do and knowing what the budget says would let them know because so they want to cut rates and they say they're going to offset the rate cuts with some kind of loophole closing but they've been very hand wavy as to whether the loophole closing will fully offset the rate cuts or not and knowing what the budget says would actually dictate where they can go with that and this is where the trump effect thing is just so weird because his White House submitted budgets, right, to Congress that oh were God. hopelessly dramatic in what they wanted to do to cut federal programs, like hopelessly right-wing. And Senate Republicans said, we're not even going to look at them, right? I think there was a— Yeah, but that's pretty, I mean, that's pretty typical that's of fine. presidents right, right. and Congress. And but budgets. sort of like now, the concern from Republicans, as I understand it, is like the exact opposite, that Trump will be interested in furthering a deal that either keeps the government funded at current levels or— works with Democrats in some capacity. Right. Well, I mean, I don't confuse government spending with what the budget is doing right now. I know that sounds confusing, but um, like government spending is kind of operating in a, on a completely different platform right now. Like the, the budget's sole purpose for this moment is to allow for tax reform to happen without the threat of the filibuster in the Senate for Republicans um, and to kind of establish these uh, cuts levels or savings levels, as Republicans say, so that they can know what tax reform will look like. And I mean, this is like a complicated story, but I mean, I, I do think this is like the moral of the story really is here that like legislating is challenging and that you would really like Republicans are not in serious disagreement with each other about the desirability of cutting taxes and cutting federal spending, right? Like, this is, unlike, say, dreamers, like, this is a unifying issue. Like, you can find any Republican anywhere and be like, would it be good to have less taxes and have the government spend less money? And they're like, yes, it absolutely would be. Nonetheless, 
like the details of exactly how much less and exactly how it works, like turn out to make a big difference to people, even people who agree on a high level about this, in part because, you know, most Republicans like spending on the military. Most Republicans like spending money on border security and law enforcement type stuff. But some Republicans are really jazzed up about some aspects of that and others less so, even if they kind of broadly agree. And then that all winds up cascading down into like, what do you cut? What do you cut where? And everybody kind of has these these interests to protect. And the fact that they did not really work this out last year is really impeding their ability to govern this year. I think a lot of people, I think Donald Trump, but I also think I had like kind of thought that Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell had like worked this stuff out. And it it seems like they have not. Well, it's like if you want to raise military spending, you want to increase border security, and you want to cut taxes, like the rest of the federal budget, if you don't want to touch entitlements, it's like just, there's not that much stuff, right? Like, right. Like the, this is where like the, the political rhetoric and the reality collide similarly as they did over Obamacare repeal. I mean, there, there are two ways of looking at that, right? One is like, they just didn't get their act together. The other is that the political promises that they made are just incompatible with what the federal government is. Some Freedom Caucus conservatives might be okay with cutting food stamps to nothing, but like that's that's not politically feasible for the rest mo- of the yeah. Party. Moderate Republicans yeah. did not run on that, right? Well, just traditionally, the key to cutting taxes has been to like not explicitly, you know, not explicitly say what people are going to lose or to not care about the deficit, right? Right, but, but they care about the deficit, which is weird. Why? Yeah, they should just not care about the deficit. That's, yeah, make their life a lot easier. But they spend a lot of time campaigning on caring about the deficit. This is where we get back to Bernie care. (laughs) Yes, Bernie doesn't care. Um, Maybe. Um, Okay, well, you know, uh, we're going to have to have to leave that as as food for thought. Think about think about our podcasting (laughs) deficits. Um, What about bipartisan tax reform, Matt? Bipartisan tax reform is great. I think <laughs> I think they should do it. It's it's amazing, um, but it, it doesn't totally seem to be be in the offing. Um, if it does happen, we will have a whole new podcast about it. Uh, but until then, um, thanks Jeff and Tara for coming on. Uh, thanks to all of you for listening. Thanks to our producer Peter Leonard. Uh, I am going to be uh, gone next week, but Ezra and Sarah will be back with a, a lovely episode for you. Uh, so we'll see you then. as always for listening to The Weeds. Uh, I also want to take this moment to insert a a really proud plug for our parent company, Vox Media. Uh, Vox Media is the fastest growing modern media company known for its standout technology and high fidelity advertising. Their platform is what supports our growth here at Vox.com, and it's what allows us to go deeper into the topics that you, our listeners, care about most. Uh, You know, for us, that's that's really public policy, but for listeners who haven't already, you should check out Vox Media's other editorial brands, whether it's SB Nation, which tells the story behind the scoreboard, The Verge, which helps you discover what to buy, what to obsess about, and what to disrupt next, or Curbed, all about real estate, home design, all that great stuff. Uh, What unites all these editorial brands is a refusal to compromise on quality, because we believe in the power of going deeper, and we believe in the best of our audiences. So if you aren't going deep, where are you going? Check out Vox Media.